tip today in association with Slattery's of Pecan, your main Peugeot dealer for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie you're very welcome back to Tip Today. It's Ronan sitting in for Fran today and we're going to go to our legal slot now because delighted to be joined by Gillian O'Mahony from uh, Lynch Solicitors in Clamell. How are you, Gillian? Good morning, Ronan. Uh, good talking to you because we're going to talk about personal injuries today and, and a personal injuries case. Now, it is daunting for anyone to have to go to court for anything. Dirt. District court, circuit court, it's daunting. It is indeed, it is indeed. And I suppose it's something that we as solicitors often forget about. You know, we prepare the case, we do all the work, we research everything. Um, But, you know, I suppose one of the most important things and what people are daunted about is their actual day in court. And solicitors often forget about preparing the client for what's involved in going into court on that day. So I suppose what I would regularly do would be I would meet before any circuit court personal injuries case. You would meet with the client beforehand, perhaps a week beforehand to ease them into it. Again, maybe a couple of days beforehand go through their evidence, what they're likely to be asked um, and really prepare them for it. Also discuss well in advance settlement talks, you know. Mm. You don't want a situation where you're down in court about to go in on the steps and somebody comes with a settlement offer and the client is then in a position where they have to make that decision where you're better off if you've had all that done well a few days in advance and the client knows what, what figure they would accept. By its very nature, it's adversarial. It is indeed. And that's what worries people. It's the kind of cross-examination that there is another side. Absolutely. And there is a solicitor or a barrister for the other side whose job it is to do mm-hmm. the best they can for their client. Yes, absolutely. I mean, everybody that's down there, their duty of care is to their client, whether you're for the plaintiff or, or whether mm. you're for the defence. So, and I suppose that it's the cross-examination that would worry a lot of people. So when somebody goes into court, the case is opened to the judge by their legal team. The judge is given a summary of what this case is about. So when the judge is listening to the case, they know what what what's mm. important in the terms of the evidence. The plaintiff then, who would be our client, would then be called to give their examination, their evidence, and they would be talked through their evidence by their own legal team. Mm. And then it's over to the other side where they get the opportunity to cross-examine them. It's at that point that you lose control of the process. Absolutely, absolutely. You almost have to coach? No, we can't coach. But I suppose what I would always say to somebody is, you know, once they tell the truth and that's the most important thing to remember when you're in the witness box as you tell the truth if you can't answer a question don't try and answer it if you don't understand the question well don't you know say that because that's when people get tied up in knots but once you're in the witness box and once you're telling the truth you've nothing to worry about the job of the defense counsel is to muddy the waters absolutely to try and trip you up yeah and mm-hmm. that it's not a personal thing. It's purely him or her doing the best job they can for their client. Absolutely. Um, but you can see why resentment can build when somebody is trying to trip you up or trying to muddy the waters. Yes, absolutely. But I suppose if we have done our job correctly up to that point, there should be no grey areas insofar as the medical evidence will be there, the medical reports will be there to clarify any issues. And it's not for our clients, I suppose, to go down the the route of medical prognosis, condition, all of that. That's done by the medical people. So a lot of the time, they will be giving evidence as to how the accident happened the facts of the accident and I suppose then their injuries. Mm. Nobody wants their good name besmirched Mm -hmm. and we're all entitled to our good name. 
But if you do have a bruising encounter in the witness box, it you can almost be, feel, I would imagine, that you've been made out to be untruthful. Absolutely, absolutely. And a lot of people worry going into court, you know, it's something that we're asked, I would say, every every on every occasion, are the media here? Mm. You know, because they're afraid then of what will be reported in the newspapers. But for the majority, you know, of circuit court, personal injuries action, road traffic accidents where somebody's rear-ended or they fall in the street, they're not the type of cases that interest the media. No, but if somebody slips in a in a supermarket mm-hmm. and, and injures themselves, that does get media traction. Sometimes, yes, sometimes, but not all of the time. I mean, the amount of cases that do that we do bring through the circuit courts that don't attract any media attention. Let's talk about settling uh, on the steps of the high court. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a well-worn legal is, phrase, yes, but it yes. doesn't. It's not always on the steps of the four courts on on the, the banks no. of the Liffey that this happens. Yes, but. It is often in the interests of the insurance company to settle before it goes to full trial because they're going to make a calculation Absolutely. on whether or not what they're, they, they have to cut their losses. Mm-hmm. They have to offset their losses. Yes. So they may come with an offer, mm-hmm. which may be south of what the reasonable expectation might be. Mm-hmm. And but the carrot is you don't have to go through the trauma of a court. Appearance. Absolutely, absolutely. And a lot of the time, I suppose, settlement offers don't come until the morning of court. Mm. As as you say, you're on the steps of the circuit court or the high court. And sometimes that may be because they're waiting to see what judge will be appointed for this case because there are certain judges that would be known to be more generous, other judges who would be known to be less generous. And I suppose settling a case then is really about what's the maximum that could be achieved on that day versus what's the minimum that could be achieved. And then I suppose the settlement is somewhere in the middle. Um, And how do you prepare a client for that? Because um, if you've been injured, if you've been out of work, if you have a legitimate claim Mm -hmm. for recompense for for your personal medical injuries and your loss of earnings, what figure you might have in your head might not be realistic? Mm -hmm. Well, I suppose we have to break it down. So loss of earnings, once that will stand up, so once we have, I suppose, medical opinion supporting the fact that they're not able to work and not that somebody of their own volition decided, right, I had um, an action, I'm not going to work, you know, so we have to make sure that we have medical opinion supporting that. Um, you know, and that's a standalone figure. Out-of-pocket medical expenses are, are standalone as well. So they all comprise special damages. So they, they are a lot of the time are not up for negotiation. The figure that's up for negotiation is your general damages. So your figure for pain and suffering. And, you know, that comes through experience and knowing the judge as well and what the judge is likely to give you for that. Well, like loss of earnings is measurable. Mm-hmm. Pain and suffering is is qualitative, not quantitative. Yes, absolutely. And I suppose we have the book of quantum, which will say what range an injury will fall in between and what you're likely to get. Now, that range is very is very broad. And again, it comes down to, I suppose, knowing your judge, knowing what judge is there on the day and what they're likely to do with that case. The system in France is different. In a whiplash claim, you get X amount. Mm-hmm, yes. In a, I don't know if you slip and break a leg in a supermarket because the floor is wet, you get a set amount mm-hmm. and it's non-negotiable. Yes, yes. Do you see merit in that system? Um, well, I suppose every case is different. So, you know, if somebody if somebody has whiplash, how it affects them may affect somebody else very differently. They, you know, they may feel it very differently. So every case under our jurisdiction, every case is a standalone case and it's it's determined on its own merits. 
you can see how some of the public can become a little jaundiced though in relation to claims mm-hmm. and how sometimes you look at claims that go through the, system, the court system and they seem rather inflated for the amount of injury caused. Well, I suppose a lot of that is the way in which cases are reported as well, you know, and it depends, you know, I mean, the insurance company are, are singing off their own hymn sheet. But from our perspective, you know, people should not be deterred if they've been injured um, through the negligence of somebody else. They should not be deterred from bringing their claim which they're entitled to do and being compensated for the pain pain and suffering which they have suffered. Would your default position be to take what's on offer? No, absolutely not. My default position, you know, it would be you would assess what's in the client's best interests and you would you would put it to them right. This is the offer. This is what I think you would achieve. And you would make a recommendation as to whether no, you should turn down that down that offer or you should run it. It depends on, I suppose, the circumstances, um, what's offer, what's on offer and whether it's something you think you can beat. If you're not in favour of the French system, for Mm -hmm. example, do you think the French system is flawed? Well, I suppose I'm not that au fait with the French system itself. Let me put it to you in a different way. Does whiplash hurts a French person differently in Bordeaux than a whiplash injury hurts somebody differently in Balna? Well, I suppose a whiplash, you know, what somebody feels from a whiplash injury, it, it affects every single person differently. Mm. And that's what our what our court system, our book of quantum takes in, takes into account because there's such a broad range of um, of compensation available depending on how it affects you, pain and suffering to date. And also what's very relevant is pain and suffering into the future. So is this an injury that's going to resolve itself within six weeks, six months, or are they going to have this pain and suffering, you know, indefinitely. And they're all things which have to be taken into account. Lots more to come on this, Gillian. We're going to have to take a quick commercial break. Back in a second. Join the conversation in Tipperary. Contact us through Facebook, Twitter or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. You're welcome back. 083311 Joined by Gillian O'Mahony from John Lynch Solicitors talking about personal injury claims. Gillian, um, as a solicitor, somebody walks through your door and you have a... You have a suspicion that the claim might be bogus. How do you proceed? Okay, so from my perspective, I would risk assess every case that comes in. We don't, we're not obliged to take on every case that comes in. And we also have, I suppose we have a duty to our clients, but we, all, we are also officers of the court. So Explain that to people. So we have a duty to the court. You know, if we believe that there is, um, you know, a fraudulent claim, we shouldn't, we shouldn't bring it, you know. But, you know, I suppose somebody comes in to me and I risk assess, I risk assess a case. So I look at the facts, I would perhaps take up their medical records and the medical records are often very interesting. For example, how do they present at A&E? Mm. When do they present at their doctor? And, you know, there would sometimes be cases that you would turn down, not necessarily because you believe they're fraudulent, but you believe they may not be successful. You know, so I would risk assess every case and decide whether there's merits and whether I believe they have a stateable claim. And if you feel the chances of success are low, you then look at it from purely a corporate point of view and that the, the firm has to get paid. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, so we would risk assess it from a commercial point of view as well, you know, and also from a client's point of view. I mean, clients are coming to you for your professional advice advice and if you're bringing a case that you think will not succeed that's not in their best interests because they are then if they're unsuccessful in their case they end up being responsible for the other side's legal costs mm. and their own legal costs so they are then left with a large legal bill which they may not be able to afford and you know we have a professional duty to advise our clients what they should do do the costs always follow 
Costs cause. follow the event. Do they always? Yes, yes. It, it, you've never seen a situation where both sides cover their own cost? Unless it's part of a settlement, but it okay. would be very, very rare. But typically in personal injuries cases, costs follow the event. Um, so therefore the risk is significant for the client or for for somebody taking a case. Because if they lose, you might be looking at a legal bill that will run to tens of thousands of euros. Yes, absolutely. And that's not a situation that we want to put any of our clients in. So I suppose in risk, in risk assessing a case, you may have to engage an engineer to look at liability. For example, if somebody fell in a public place or, you know, fell over a step or something like that or a pothole in the street, mm. you may get an engineer out at an early stage to tell you, um, give you an opinion on liability. Okay. Uh, can you understand why the public have become somewhat cynical about personal injury cases? Well, I suppose it depends on the way cases are portrayed as well. I mean, Do you bl- Is that a media reporting that it's sort of uh, they take out the salacious bits and leave out the detail absolutely and the devil's in the detail absolutely and I suppose the cases that tend to attract media attention are the juicy cases not the genuine cases the standard cases that are going through the courts every day of the week Okay. Um, It's an expensive process going to even, like the district court is one thing, Mm -hmm. circuit court's quite another and the high court is into the stratospheric in terms of costs. Absolutely. People need to be aware of that. Absolutely, absolutely. And I suppose circuit court, just to remind listeners, circuit court cases are cases where the value of the case, so the compensation is between 15,000 and 60,000 euro and then high court cases are minimum 60,000 and the sky's your limit. One caller is asking about legal fees involved in a case and says that sometimes the legal teams on both sides can make more than the claimant will make, even if the claimant is successful. I suppose it'll it'll depend, you know, that's a very, you know, general, very general comment. It depends, you know, it depends on the case. Costs are typically taxed. If agreement can't be reached on costs, they're taxed by the taxing master, master, the cost adjudicator, as it's now known. And, you know, they will determine what are the appropriate costs. But you may have medical, you know, medical expert fees, you may have engineers fees, you know, and they all add to it. Let's just, let's just take a scenario where you go to court, go to this, the circuit court and you have, you get to that point because you have a reasonable expectation of success mm-hmm. and you feel that your case is watertight, if, mm-hmm. if there is such a, a case that's watertight or it's bona fide. Yeah. Um, and you lose. Mm-hmm. That can be quite devastating for somebody because now they're looking at a legal bill. Absolutely. What do they do then? What course is available? Well, I suppose we would look, you know, you, you can appeal, you know, so that would be something we would look at, whether whether there would be merits in an appeal. Um, and, you know, if, there, if there's not an appeal, well, you know, they're then faced with legal bills. It would be a matter for us then to decide whether we were going to pursue our client for legal fees, but that that would be dependent on the case. But the defendants then, you know, they're fully entitled to go off and get their bill drawn up and pursue the plaintiff. But there may be cases where the plaintiff may not be a mark. So it could be a waste of further legal costs if a defendant was to go and pursue them for legal costs, which they won't ever recover. You just write these off as bad debts. I suppose it depends, yeah. yeah. But as a legal firm, you may have invested many hundreds Mm -hmm. of hours of legal mind Mm -hmm. time. Yeah for not. Mm. Which goes back to why it's very important before you take on a case to risk assess it. You know, get 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 engineers' mm. reports, go through go through medical records because you obviously want to avoid a situation where you're going to lose a case. Uh, just in terms of the, the, the nature of the court um, in its circuit court mm-hmm. as opposed to district court, the judge um, 
it's it's a non-jury trial. Or it's not a trial. That's probably the wrong. It's, it's a non, it's a hearing. It's a hearing. It? Yeah, yes. it's a non-jury hearing. So the the burden of responsibility falls on one individual. Mm-hmm, can be kind of a scary individual, can't they? Yeah. Well, I suppose you know in the circuit court we're we're fortunate here in Clamell that we have you know judges that are not intimidating. You know they, you know they're very you know they're they're not intimidating when somebody goes in and judges will often try and relax a client when they're getting into the witness box. But I suppose it's very important for clients that, you know, they have to make an impression on the judge as well, that the judge at the end of the day, it's one person and it's how they, the judge perceives that person, whether they're credible, how they present to the court, how they're dressed is often very important as well. They have to show respect, not getting perhaps into an argument when they're being asked questions. Their attire is important. It is, it is, yes. And it's it's a question I'm regularly asked, how should I dress for court? And I suppose the answer I would always give is you need to show respect to the court. You need to show respect to the judge because at the end of the day, it will be the judge who will be deciding your case. So dress like you're going to an interview. Mm. Dress like you want, you want, you know, you want respect. Obviously, no tracksuits, no um, trainers, and, no yeah. trainers, no skin, no hoodies, clothes, you know. And sometimes you would tell people to take out um, facial piercings, things like that, you know. Covered tattoos? Mm, yes, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, it's interesting that that, you know, the merits of the case should stand mm-hmm. irrespective of the attire of yeah. the defendant. But I suppose if somebody's been cross-examined, so if a defendant legal team is trying to muddy the waters, the judge will be looking carefully at the person, giving their evidence to see how credible, how are they presenting and, on you know, first impressions. If your client gets into a spat mm. with the defence counsel, do, do, do you put your head in your hands and go, this is couldn't be going any worse? Um, I suppose it doesn't help them, you know. It's very important to stay calm, to stay, you know, reasoned. It's You answer, you direct your answers to the judge, not to the defendant's legal team. And because it's the judge is the most, is the per, you know, it's most important that the judge hears, hears the evidence. But it's, yes, it's very important to stay calm. Not, not easy, though. Yeah, just one texture brings up the issue of whiplash claims, mm-hmm. right, again. And it seems like whiplash is coming in on text a lot. Uh, recent comments that some physicians, some uh, orthopaedic surgeons who are treating people for whiplash injuries, once the settlement comes, they don't see the client again. Just mm-hmm. clarify that, that, again, that was the way it was reported. There's a mm-hmm. bit more detail in that, though. Yeah, I suppose that's, that's the way it was reported, you know. And again, you know, is there an insurance agenda behind the reporting of these cases, you know? But, you know, I'm not sure where they got their statistics on this, but I would imagine that there are many GPs in particular who continue to treat their patients once a case has settled. Yeah, I'd imagine so, because they're seeing them on a chronic Absolutely. basis as opposed Absolutely. to just a consultant on a, on a once-off period. Uh, can you as a solicitor see the umbilical between personal injury claims and insurance costs? I mean, there was statistics now, and I can't quote them. I think that there was statistics in the last year that there was no correlation between the rising insurance costs and the claims. And I think this was something that was brought to the insurance industry. And I'm I'm not convinced that there is a correlation between the two. This is something that Pierce Doherty teased out quite mm-hmm. well, I think, during a public accounts committee, because a lot of people listening to us would, would draw that comparison. Mm-hmm. But there does seem to be a difference that that's um, kind of a, 
an urban myth, mm-hmm. for want of a better term, that there's a correlation between mm-hmm. the two. Yes. And there is a lot of profiteering. I know it's probably outside the remit of asking mm. a solicitor this, but there does seem to be a, a lot of profits in the insurance industry, notwithstanding the amount of claims we have in this country. Indeed, indeed. And I suppose, you know, the inju- the um, the Personal Injuries Assessment Board was brought in in 2004 to try and reduce the, the costs of insurance. Mm. And again, have we seen a correlation between... Has know, that been successful? Um, I mean, yes, it's it's successful on one level insofar as it's suitable for some types of cases, but not all types of cases. But um, yes, there, you know, I suppose there's a lot of cases being resolved to the Personal um, Insurance Injuries Assessment Board. But again, you know, where do we see the reduction in our insurance? Good question. And last question I have for you is what, where do you see a role for mediation in this process? Yes, mediation um I suppose when you're going through the Personal Injuries Assessment Board, mediation isn't appropriate because you're, you've submitted all your paperwork. It's a paperwork-based case and it's there for adjudication. Mediation is regularly, you know, I suppose in the bigger cases, probably in the context of the high court cases, mm. medical medical negligence cases, you know, certainly if cases can be resolved by mediation, I'd be a huge advocate of that. It's it's short circuits a lot, doesn't it? It does, but it often comes too late in the day where you've done all the work, you've your client prepped for court, you have a hearing date and then very late in the day there's a request for mediation. Mediation can only happen if both parties sign up to it. Absolutely. One person wanting mediation doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. it's a voluntary process. Gillian, I could talk to you for hours, but I'm afraid that's all we've time for. Thanks indeed for coming in. Look forward to talking to you in the next next picture (laughs) whenever I'm here again. Uh, We have a break to take back in a second.